Tracking the Backpacker Murderer by David Moller Two teenagers left Sydney to hitchhike their way home to Melbourne one summer morning. Then they vanished without trace. What began as a routine investigation into the missing pair was to lead down a horrifying trail of discovery. Soon, seasoned detectives were running themselves ragged trying to track down a brutal criminal. Here is the inside story of the biggest murder investigation in Australian history. A gripping tale of hideous crime and masterly detective work. Concern pricked at Patricia Everest's mind. It was now three days since she had heard from her daughter Deborah. The attractive, blue-eyed 19-year-old had left their home in Melbourne on December 28, 1989, for a hitchhiking trip to Sydney. Accompanying her was her friend James Gibson, also 19, a youth over 180 centimetres tall living nearby in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. The pair had planned to be away from home for no more than a week. Deborah was about to resume her studies for a Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Melbourne. James was studying art at Frankston Technical College. As well as their academic studies, both had other reasons for not being away for a long time. James had promised to be back for his sister Marianne's wedding on January 21, 1990. Deborah, whose stepfather was seriously ill, didn't like to leave her mother for too long. As soon as they got to Sydney, Deborah had rung home. Just calling to say hello and that we're all right. I'll call you tomorrow or the next day, Mum, to let you know what our movements are. Take care. Love you. But the next call never came. Every few days, Patricia Everest rang James's mother, Peggy Gibson, to ask if she had heard anything. Finally, on January 15, the two women reported their children's disappearance to the Victoria Police. Meanwhile, the families made their own efforts to find their children. Friends helped produce pamphlets about the missing couple. They hired a private investigator. Members of the Gibson family travelled the Hume Highway between Melbourne and Sydney, talking to shopkeepers, truck drivers, petrol station staff, showing them photos of the teenagers smiling with all the guileless radiance of youth. Almost a year after her daughter had gone missing, Patricia Everest bought and wrapped up makeup and a gold chain to have ready as Christmas presents, just in case Deborah came home. She refused to give up hoping. Maybe Deborah had been injured in some remote part of Australia or had lost her memory. One day, perhaps, she would simply walk in through their front door. While the anguish for Patricia Everest started within days of Deborah's departure, it took longer for Ray and Gil Walters, halfway around the world, to know that something was wrong. In May 1991, their daughter Joanne, a tall, dark-haired 22-year-old, left their home in Maesteg, Wales, for a working trip round the world. A trained nanny, Joanne had had no difficulty in picking up jobs in Australia, working with children as a waitress, fruit picker, and crew member on a yacht cruising the Great Barrier Reef. Joanne was an assiduous letter writer and rang home every other weekend. But since mid-April 1992, there had been no word from her. Towards the end of May, Ray contacted Joanne's bank. The account hadn't been activated since April 15. Ray spent his evenings calling people in Australia. Those Joanne had worked for, friends she had made, backpacker hostels, country police stations. He and Jill racked their brains for contacts. During their last chat, Joanne spoke of leaving Sydney to pick melons in Western Australia. 
She said she was with an English girl called Caroline, Ray now recalled. From a farm in Victoria, where he knew the two girls had earlier worked, Ray got Caroline's surname, Clark, and a number for her in England. He discovered that she was the daughter of a Bank of England official living in Northumberland. Ray felt his hands turn to ice as Caroline's father Ian related a pattern of events identical to his own. Caroline, a tall, fair-haired 21-year-old and the youngest of the Clark's three children, had set off in September 1991 for an extended trip around the world. Ian and his wife Jacqueline had been surprised to hear nothing from Caroline on May 8, her sister Emma's birthday. When there was no word on May 24, Ian's birthday, they became seriously worried. Caroline isn't always the best of correspondents, but she would never miss a birthday, Jacqueline said. Ian Clark contacted British police. Soon in Sydney, Detective Sergeant Neville Scullion and a small team began tracing the last movements of the two British girls. Leaving their backpackers' accommodation in King's Cross on April 18, the pair had apparently taken the train to the southwestern Sydney suburb of Liverpool. From there, it was just a short walk to the Hume Highway, the traditional setting-off point for backpackers, hitchhiking south to Canberra and Melbourne. Throughout the summer, Ray Walters and Ian Clark kept in contact. They helped make up posters with photos of Joanne and Caroline, which were sent to backpacker hostels around Australia. At home in Maesteg, Jill Walters clung desperately to the hope that Joanne was in some remote settlement where communications were difficult. An outback sheep station, perhaps, or an Aboriginal reserve. People couldn't just disappear in a country like Australia. As the summer drew on, Ray realised that they would know no peace until they visited Australia themselves. He got time off from his job as a paper mill supervisor, and on August 24, 1992, he and Jill set off for Sydney. They then toured the country, visiting anywhere that might have some tenuous connection with their daughter's travels. Saturday, September 19, was a spring day of stunning beauty, with luminescent blue skies and golden honeyed light. Conditions seemed perfect as eight members of the Scrub Runners Orienteering Club began a training exercise in the 3,600-hectare Belanglo State Forest, 140 kilometres southwest of Sydney and 12 kilometres off the Hume Highway. Keith Seeley and Keith Coldwell made their way through a clearing of eucalyptus trees towards their next marker, a large outcrop of grey sandstone. But as they approached the rock, they became aware of the stench of decaying flesh. They knew the forest abounded in wildlife, yet curiosity drew them to an overhang on the far side of the rock. At first, they could see only sticks and branches. But peering closer, Coldwell made out a patch of hair, what looked like an elbow bone, and part of a dark T-shirt. His eyes travelled the length of the barely perceptible 1.8-metre-long mound, then noted the unmistakable outline of a boot. Over a mobile phone, Seely rang police in the nearby town of Bowral. I'd like to report a body in the Belanglo State Forest. It was the beginning of the biggest murder investigation in Australia's history. By the time crime scene investigator Senior Constable Andrew Gross arrived in the Belanglo Forest, it was dark. Emergency lighting cast a harsh, silvery light on the forest floor as the stocky 26-year-old began the hunt for clues within an area cordoned off with plastic tape. Each layer of leaves, sticks and branches had to be meticulously scrutinised and photographed before being removed. 
Gradually, Gross made out a body lying face down, wearing blue jeans, black leather walking boots and a navy blue t-shirt. It had been pulled up around the shoulders. Next morning, police found another body against a log, just 30 metres away. A maroon cloth, stiff with congealed blood, covered the head. With no sign of backpacks or other possessions, the victims were identified from clothing, jewellery and dental charts. That Sunday, September 20, Neville Scullion was trying to locate Ray and Jill Walters when Ray made one of his periodic calls to ask if there was any news. Whereabouts are you, Ray? We're down here at the Sydney Opera House having a look around. Within minutes, Scullion was hurrying through the crowd on one of the world's most breathtaking waterfronts. As he approached the Walters, he noted their look of grim anticipation. It isn't the news you want to hear, he began. We've found a body and it's Joanne's. She's been murdered. Jill Walters gave a scream and collapsed against her husband, unleashing the pain that had been clawing at her for more than five months. 16,000 kilometres away, Ian and Jacqueline Clark were on their way home from a wedding in Surrey when their car phone rang. It was the police. Two bodies have been found in a forest, the policeman said. It looks as though it's the girls. What neither police nor parents yet knew was the full horror of what the two young women had been through. Intimations of that would emerge only in the autopsies, scheduled to start the following day at the New South Wales Institute of Forensic Medicine in Glebe, Sydney. For more than seven hours, forensic pathologist Dr Peter Bradhurst, at 57 a veteran of about 200 homicides, examined the decomposed remains of Joanne Walters. She had received at least 14 stab wounds in the chest and back. One blackened cut in the partially mummified skin indicated a blow so strong it would have cut her spine, causing paralysis. Joanne had been gagged and a ligature draped around her neck. The dark-haired pathologist examined her hands for defensive wounds, indicating that she had had a chance to deflect the blows. There was none. And five months on, there was no conclusive way of establishing whether death was by stabbing, strangling or suffocation. On Caroline Clark, Bradhurst found just one stab wound to the back. Was that done simply to incapacitate her? After removing the blood-matted red cloth from her head, he noted ten separate shots into the skull, any one of which would have proved fatal. It's almost as if the head had been deliberately turned and used as target practice, he thought. Her hands showed no signs of defensive wounds. Detective Inspector Bob Godden of the South West Region Major Crime Squad based at Flemington, Western Sydney, had worked on some 15 murder inquiries in his 27-year police career. But as he read the pathologist's report, the 48-year-old father of four, nearly 200 centimetres tall with greying moustache and watchful eyes, knew this was going to be one of the worst. In addition to the variety of weapons used, guns and knives, and the victim's apparent helplessness, there were signs of sexual molestation. Caroline's breasts had been exposed. All but the top button on her jeans had been undone. It was the same with Joanne, except she was also missing her underwear. In the Belanglo forest, a massive search was underway. Over five days, 40 officers scoured a great swathe 150 metres wide along three kilometres of tracks. There was no trace of any of the victim's possessions or a murder weapon. The only substantial leads were three bullets recovered from the soil where Caroline Clark had lain, and nearby, 
10 empty cartridge cases. All were from a 22 Ruger semi-automatic rifle. Since the bodies had been found deep in the forest, Godden speculated that the killer was a local person. I reckon he's also likely to have access to a four-wheel drive, he remarked to his second-in-command, Detective Sergeant Steve McLennan. Those fire trails are a bit steep and rocky for standard vehicles. Godden directed his team of 14 detectives to start trawling through computer lists of owners of four-wheel drives, anyone convicted of a violent or sexual offence. Investigators visited local pistol clubs and individual gun holders and began gleaning information about the walkers and campers who used the forest. The case's high media profile brought in a steady stream of leads. Two women reported picking up a pair of hitchhikers at Waterfall, on Sydney's southern edge, three days after Joanne and Caroline were known to have left King's Cross. One girl had said she was from Wales, the other from northern England. After a short drive south, they had been dropped off at a service station near the coast at Bulleye Pass. Employees there had seen two British women getting into a truck that same day. There was another sighting at the Blue Boar Hotel, a pub in Bowral, inland from Bulleye Pass. Two British girls had arrived at about 10pm, entertained customers with ballads and brought the house down singing to the backing of a karaoke machine. Police focused on reports of vehicles that travelled regularly between Bulleye Pass and Bowral. Then a Canberra policeman, off duty with his wife and young daughter, reported seeing two young women getting out of a white, beaten-up Volkswagen combi van at a roadside picnic site in Mittagong, not far from the Belanglo, on April 26. The driver of the van was about 180 centimetres tall, athletically built and with short, cropped hair. Godden put out an appeal for the van's driver to come forward. His team also began the laborious task of tracking down every white Volkswagen combi in Australia. The first anniversary of the victim's discovery loomed. There was no suspect. Apart from the combi van, whose owner the police were still trying to trace, there were few leads. Detectives returned to other duties, leaving only four officers on the case at Flemington. Yet those living near the Belanglo continued to feel alarm at the possibility of a killer in their midst. One in particular, 42-year-old Potter Bruce Pryor, was mystified by the absence of any of the victim's possessions. Pryor often searched in the Belanglo for firewood, venturing deep into the forest in his ageing utility. He was convinced that one day he would come across a backpack, clothing or some other clue. As the father of two young girls, he knew there would be no peace for the victim's families until the killer was behind bars. On Tuesday, October 5, 1993, Pryor was driving to do some fossicking, picking over old gold mine workings at Nowra when an idea crossed his mind. The Morris Fire Trail. That's the one I've never yet been down. He turned and set off back towards the Belanglo. An hour later, he was inching his vehicle down a rock-strewn track. On a hillside where the view opened out, he stopped and strolled down a clearing among the eucalyptus trees, his artist's eye feasting on the distant wooded hills, hazy blue in the sunlight. Suddenly, he stopped in his tracks. On the forest floor was a large bone. He picked it up. He had learnt some physiology from his wife, a radiographer. He turned the bone in his hand. A femur. The top end wasn't wide enough for the muscle attachment of a kangaroo. It had to be human. He measured it against his own thigh bone. Someone about his own relatively short height. A woman?
Carefully, he began covering the area in a grid pattern, occasionally spotting other whitened bones. Half an hour later, any lingering doubts vanished. Upside down on the forest floor was a human skull. Wrapping it in a sweater, Pryor hastened to inform the police at Bowral. Within hours, the Belanglo was again swarming with police. Just 35 metres from where the skull was found, officers glimpsed the outline of faded sand shoes. Removing twigs and leaves, they uncovered jeans and a green T-shirt. Inside was a skeleton, lying on its side in a fetal position. Both bodies had been there for some years. Only 600 metres of dense bush separated them from where Joanne and Caroline had been found, and there were signs of the same calculated savagery. Near one body, police found a pair of tights with each leg tied into a slip knot to form a loop with two further knots perhaps used to bind a victim's hands and feet. This time pathologist Peter Bradhurst had only skeletal remains to work on. All soft tissue on the bodies had gone. But by examining the bones minutely for chips and cracks, he eventually established that the victim found in a fetal crouch had been stabbed six times in the chest and once in the spine with a blade just under 33 millimetres wide, about the same width as the one used on Joanne Walters. Another grim clue linked the murders. The top button of the victim's disintegrating jeans was still done up, but the zip was down. On the remains of the other victim, Bradhurst found clear signs of multiple injuries. Marks on a lower left rib showed that a stab wound would have penetrated the left lung and probably the heart. The skull bore evidence of four superficial cuts on the forehead, two fractures on the right side and a broken lower jaw. From their dental records, clothing and jewellery, the two were identified as James Gibson and Deborah Everest. Police broke the terrible news to the Everest and Gibson families. Deborah and James would never come home. With the discovery of two more bodies, the murder hunt went into overdrive. Far greater resources would now be needed to solve the brutal serial killings. Within hours of the discovery of the first body, New South Wales Assistant Police Commissioner Bill Galvin commander of the South West Region, had put through a call to Superintendent Clive Small, patrol commander in Liverpool, the Sydney suburb from which all four victims were believed to have started their journey. The message was brief. They found another body in the Belanglo. Could you go down there and have a look? Small, a compact, dynamic 47-year-old with wire-rimmed glasses and meticulous appearance, had made a name for himself by cracking several big money laundering and drugs operations. A man of diamond-hard integrity and keen intellect, small bristled with diplomas and degrees. Now, appointed to head the investigation, codenamed Task Force Air, small could think of no case in which he had started with fewer advantages. Seasoned detectives had worked tirelessly for a year, making little headway. Plus there was the remoteness of the crime scenes and the lack of witnesses. But small refused to dwell on the setbacks. Far more important, a brutal killer was still at large. Energetically, he set up appointing his team. Godden was made Chief Investigator of Operations and brought with him Detective Sergeant Steve McLennan. Small's deputy, Detective Superintendent Rod Lynch, a 190-centimetre-tall giant of a man, had the immediate task of organising a Sydney headquarters in part of an unused police building. Lynch set about equipping it with wiring for 30 telephones and a dozen computers. Crucial was the computer link to Bowral Police Station, 
where Small had a temporary base from which he ventured daily into the nearby Belanglo forest. Small took an early, bold decision to make friends of the media. As several hundred reporters from around the world converged on the area, eager to cover the story, Small conducted a press briefing in the forest at eight each morning and one in Bowral each afternoon. Somehow, we've got to shake out every little scrap of information that might help, he said to Lynch. Even some foreign backpacker who has long gone home might know something useful. It was a decision that nearly sank the investigation. A telephone hotline received over 2,000 calls in the first week. Within a few days, 2,500 people were named as possible suspects. All had to be scrutinised and many interviewed personally for possible links with the murders or with other missing young people whose photos were displayed in Small's command posts. Among those missing was Simone Schmidl, a 21-year-old office worker from Regensburg, Germany. A seasoned traveller, she had already explored Canada, Alaska and New Zealand before arriving in Australia for a second visit on January 19, 1991. That night, Simone, known as Simi, stayed with friends in Guildford, not far from Liverpool. They had heard some disturbing stories about backpackers and begged her not to hitch. But Simi, heading for Melbourne Airport to meet her mother, Erwina, was adamant. Tall, sturdily built, resourceful, she had never had any problems on her travels. Hoisting an enormous backpack to her shoulders, she cut a distinctive figure in her yellow singlet, green shorts bearing a Kiwi emblem, hiking boots and dark dreadlocks held back with a purple headband. She enveloped her friend, another German traveller, in a farewell hug. Don't worry, she said, I'll be quite safe. As soon as Simi's mother arrived in Melbourne, friends warned her that her daughter was missing. She stayed on in Australia for six weeks, while back in Germany her divorced husband, Herbert, an adoring father of their only child, struggled to carry on his job as a bus driver. Worst of all was the anguish of waiting, not knowing, as the weeks turned into months. Meanwhile in the Belanglo forest, a small army of up to 300 police continued their search. Shoulder to shoulder, often on their hands and knees, they scoured great swathes on either side of the fire trails, sieving hundreds of square metres of earth and ground cover. At 3.15pm on November 1, 1993, a shout of FIND suddenly halted a line of searchers. Five kilometres further into the forest from the place where Deborah Everest and James Gibson had been found, an officer had spotted what might be a human leg bone. From under the mantle of leaves and twigs, crime scene officer Andrew Gross gradually uncovered another large bone, then a hiking boot. A decaying yellow singlet and faded green shorts bearing a Kiwi emblem suggested that the remains had been there for two or three years. Round the skeleton's skull was a greying purple band with the word compactor mat on it. In his autopsy room in Sydney, Bradhurst listed two stab wounds in the spine and six in the chest. He removed a beaded chain from the neck. This, a leather neckband with a Maori carving and a ring found near the body, helped identify the victim as Simone Schmidl. As news of Simone's murder was broadcast on the German media, it brought renewed heartache for Manfred and Anke Neugebauer, living just outside Bonn. For nearly two years, they had heard nothing from their son Gabor. A tall, strong 21-year-old, he had been touring Australia with Anja Habshid, 20, a fellow student at Munich University. 
Gabor had telephoned home early on Christmas morning 1991. He was planning to go to Darwin before visiting the Indonesian island of Bali and then heading home. Later, his father discovered that mail and gifts sent to the young couple at Darwin Post Office had not been collected. Plane tickets to Bali were not used. Desperately concerned, the new Gabawas too had made the journey to Australia, together with Anja's brother. For four weeks they had searched, travelling several thousand kilometres, before forlornly heading home. Three days after the discovery of Simone Schmidl's body, the forest revealed more of its dark secrets. Nearly two kilometres east of where she had been found, searchers were again stopped by a cry of, Find! Beside a felled eucalyptus tree, an officer had caught the gleam of a whitened skeleton. Just 60 metres away, on the other side of a fire trail, was another body. They were identified as Anja Habshid and Gabor Nugabauer. Some 160 metres from Gabor's remains, police found a mass of .22 cartridge cases, along with tangled electrical tape, white sash cord and a leather strap that could have been used as bondage restraints. A broken silver-coloured necklace given to Anja for her 18th birthday suggested a struggle. In Sydney, Bradhurst recorded a variety of horrific assaults. Anja had been decapitated. He believed she had been kneeling, almost as if in a ceremonial execution, with her chin resting on her chest. A sharp, heavy instrument had slammed downwards, slicing cleanly near her fourth cervical vertebra. Her skull was never found. Gabor had been shot in the head six times with a .22 calibre weapon. A piece of cloth had been stuffed into his mouth. Another piece of material had been tied round his mouth, perhaps to stifle his cries further. There was also a fracture of the hyoid bone at the base of his tongue, which suggested that he had been strangled. Anka Nugabauer came to Australia to take Gabor's body home. Bob Godden, now working a punishing 18-hour day on the investigation, nonetheless insisted on accompanying her to the clearing where her son had been found. Among the eucalyptus and wattle trees, she sat and wept quietly. Then she walked over to Godden. I know your time must be precious, but could you let me have one hour here by myself? I want you to have as much time here as you need, Godden assured her. He walked away into the forest. By mid-November 1993, the search of the Belanglo was completed. As Clive Small's full team joined forces in their Sydney headquarters, the city was beginning to swelter in the humidity of early summer. Dust hung heavy in the operations room, where walls were still being pulled down to create the single large working area that Small wanted for a close, fast communicating team. With calls still pouring in, there would be a massive work for his 38 detectives and 20-odd computer analysts and support staff but at last they might have one or two solid leads. The .22 calibre bullets used in the killing of Gabor Nugabauer appeared to be identical to those found in Caroline Clark. Distinctive crescent-shaped markings on the cartridge cases found near both bodies showed they had been fired with the same firing pin, that of a .22 Ruger 10-22 made before 1982. From the gun's American manufacturers, Police learnt that 55,000 Rugers of the suspect type had been imported to Australia between 1964 and 1985. They set up a special computer database with details of all the weapons. Using the manufacturer's records, 
they would trace every weapon through distribution outlets to rifle clubs and individual purchasers. They would appeal for all owners of Ruger 1022s to come forward and sift gun shop records to pinpoint those who had bought Ruger 1022s in for repairs. It was a massive undertaking, but from the start, Small had warned his team that thoroughness was more likely to crack this case than inspired shortcuts. As long as every piece of information is recorded and checked, we'll get to it in the end. The task force, however, had made one find that quickened Small's blood. Close to Gabor's body, they had picked up an empty Winchester brand cartridge box that could have held the .22 calibre bullets the killer used on both Gabor and Caroline Clark. It bore the batch number ACD-1CF2. At the Winchester factory in Geelong, Victoria, officers discovered that that particular batch of ammunition had been relatively small, just 320,000 cartridges, but they would not have been sold in any specific order. After a week combing through several box files of sales invoices and stock records, they established that the batch had left the factory between June 2 and November 30, 1988, and gone to outlets all over Australia. Detectives would now contact these wholesalers and gun shops to try to find out who had bought the ammunition and what other customers used that type of bullet. Meanwhile, other investigators were trawling databases of sex offenders and of people convicted of abduction or crimes of violence. Given the number of circumstantial links between the murders, Small and Lynch were working on the assumption that one person was likely to have killed all the victims. If we alibi a person for one crime, said Small, that will have to take them out of the inquiry for the moment. State police forces around Australia alerted the task force to possible suspects. In all, six convicted killers were scrutinised, but in every case their alibis checked out. As the investigation ground on towards the end of 1993, Small felt mounting pressure. Apart from Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark, all the victims had gone missing around Christmas and the New Year period. Is the killer poised to strike again? He increased police patrols and stepped up the covert watch on those still hitching lifts from the Sydney end of the Hume Highway. Another growing concern was the sheer volume of information pouring into the inquiry. By January 1994, the computer system, with a patchwork of nearly 1.5 million pieces of information and a variety of software on it, was fast approaching breakdown. Lynch warned Small that investigators were simply not getting the data they needed. We might have to start again, almost from scratch, but we'll end up with a much better system. Gloomily, Small stared out of the window at what he could see of another golden summer evening. At 7pm, it was still sweltering in the grimy building. He wasn't going to get home, again, in time to see his 11-year-old daughter Amber or 14-year-old son Joshua. These days, even he and his wife Alison met only briefly. For a few moments, he pondered. A whole new computer system? He knew only he could make the decision. All right, he concluded, let's go for it. Rod Lynch and a team of computer analysts worked almost around the clock to install the new technology. But still small worried that in the mountain of data, some minute clue might somehow have been overlooked. Are there people in our system that we've already looked at who should be ringing bells? To help produce some form of psychological profile of the killer, he set up an impromptu panel of outside experts. At their first meeting on January 28, 1994, Small, Lynch, 
two officers from the New South Wales Police Intelligence Group, an educationist, a computer expert, forensic psychiatrist Dr Rod Milton and Dr Richard Basham, a specialist in psychiatric anthropology from Sydney University, brainstormed for several hours. Basham offered the view that, given the ruggedness of the terrain in which the victims had been buried and the macho nature of the killings, the murderer might also own a motorcycle. Milton suggested that since none of the victims' backpacks or other possessions had been recovered, the killer could well have kept souvenirs of his crimes. Sexual assault was considered a possible motive, although not the major one. There were clear signs of sexual interference to four of the victims. The improvised restraints found near the bodies of Deborah Everest and Gabor Nugabauer hinted at bondage. And the remains of campfires near two of the burial sites, and cigarette butts at one, suggested that the killer had lingered at the scene. The group came up with a profile of a killer in his 40s, who might have already been in trouble at school. A man not good at forming relationships, who perhaps killed for the pleasure of exerting power, who had a strong interest in firearms and knives, possibly dominant within his own family. During a break, Small decided to test a hunch on Basham. He explained that their inquiries had brought into the frame a particular family, several of whom lived in isolated hamlets or ramshackle farms. Big purchases of ammunition, between them they had notched up a variety of offences. Basham's response was swift. Clive, you've got to watch that family. The name of that family was Malat. Small deployed a team to delve into the Malat family, a task complicated by the fact that some of them used several different names and owned vehicles and held firearm licences in each other's names. Stefan, the father, had migrated from Yugoslavia after the First World War. In his mid-thirties, he married an Australian girl half his age and they produced a family of 14, four daughters and ten sons. Stefan worked seven days a week in back-breaking labouring jobs to provide for his family in their weatherboard home in Moorbank, near Liverpool. Hard on himself, he was also harsh with his children. As one son put it, if you came home and you'd been in any sort of trouble, he'd just whack you to the ground. Nevertheless, as youths, four of his ten sons got into trouble with the law for theft, breaking and entering, stealing cars, illegal possession of firearms. One daughter was killed in a car driven by her brother Walter. Another brother, David, lost the use of an arm and was left brain damaged after two car accidents. Michael Malat was given a long prison sentence at the age of 22 for his involvement in several armed robberies. Besides their interest in firearms, the family had come to the notice of the task force for another reason. Among the flood of statements made to the police was one from a member of the Bowral Pistol Club, located in the Belanglo Forest. On his way from the club at around the time that Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark had disappeared in April 1992, he had passed two vehicles turning into the forest's access road. One was a 1980 brown Ford Falcon, the other a beige and brown four-wheel drive utility van, possibly a Holden Rodeo. In the Falcon were four men, and between two of them in the back was a woman gagged with a length of honey-coloured material which was wrapped round her head across her mouth. There was another gagged woman in the second vehicle. The informant was a 52-year-old former miner who then lived in the Belanglo area. His name? Alex Malat. Detectives returned to his home several times to check his statement, 
but Alex Millat refused to budge. He simply supplied more detail, even describing calluses and tattoos on the hands of one of the men. But could anyone passing a car travelling on a dusty lane at 30 kilometres per hour have noticed such detail? Small felt nonplussed. Why had Malat waited more than 18 months to report such a menacing incident? Is he deliberately trying to throw police off the scent with a stream of misleading detail? Or is he trying to let us know, in a very oblique way, that something horrifying is going on in his family? Small instructed his team to keep digging. Attention was soon focused on a younger brother, 49-year-old Ivan. In his youth, he had acquired several convictions for car theft and breaking and entering. A short, stocky man with a moustache, piercing blue eyes and formidable strength, he had developed into a model employee as a road worker for the then Department of Main Roads at Liverpool, and his manager from an earlier job described him as honest, courteous and reliable. At home in Eaglevale, near Liverpool, where he lived with his sister Shirley, Ivan Millat was seen as an ideal neighbour, always the first to get a neighbour's car started or help cut down a tree. He maintained his garden in picture-book condition, spent hours polishing his four-wheel-drive Holden Jackaroo and his prized Harley-Davidson motorcycle, and kept a constant eye on his ageing mother and brain-damaged brother David, who lived with her in nearby Guildford. Further digging revealed a darker picture. Many years earlier, at Easter 1971, Ivan Malat had picked up two hitchhikers, Margaret and Greta, on the Hume Highway. Turning into a dirt road near Goulburn, he had stopped the car and told them, either one of you have sex with me or I will kill you both. Then he had produced two knives and two pink nylon cords, evidently prepared in advance to tie up his victims. Margaret eventually agreed to have sex, so long as he later drove off and left them unharmed. At one stage, Greta made as if to escape from the car. In an instant, Malat grabbed her leather choker, whipping it tight with sudden, horrifying strength. He then tied her up. Brazenly, Malat later drove them to a petrol station for Margaret to buy them drinks. Once inside the garage shop, she told the staff, There is a chap in the car. He has a knife and he has raped me. A small crowd hurried outside. Greta, who had been untied, escaped from the car just as Malat managed to speed away. In a chase of speeds up to 170 kilometres per hour, he outran the police. He was stopped later only when they placed a semi-trailer across the road. Bailed, Malat fled to New Zealand. He slipped back after three years, but by the time he was arrested and tried in December 1974, memories had dimmed. The jury, persuaded that sex had taken place with the woman's consent, as Malat insisted, acquitted him. After Malat returned from New Zealand, he was also tried for the same armed robbery that had sent his brother Michael to prison. Again, he walked free. Small's team also heard from two women, Mary Trigillis and Therese Tran, of another incident. In 1977, as teenagers they had accepted a lift near Campbelltown on the Hume Highway. Without warning, the driver turned into a road leading to the Wombian Caves. This isn't the way to Canberra, one of the girls protested. No, don't worry, this is a scenic shortcut. After a while, the road became a dirt track through increasingly dense bush. Finally, the car halted in a clearing. Why are we stopping here? Therese Tran asked. Nature calls, he reassured them. But as the driver got back into the car, 
he leaned over to grab Mary Tregillis. Okay, girls, which of you wants it first? Desperately, Mary fought to break away from her attacker. Run, screamed Mary. As the two women sprinted from the car, Therese Tran yelled, Hit the ditch! They raced down the ditch that ran alongside the track, then dodged off into the bush. Time seemed to stand still as they huddled like terror-stricken animals as their pursuer drove back and forth, looking for them. Although the two women did not report the incident to the police, they had never forgotten their ordeal. But would they be able to identify the man? Therese Tran, sitting in the back, never saw his full face, but said she'd never forget his eyes. Shown a series of photographs, she selected two. One was of Ivan Malat. Mary Tregillis chose just one photograph, of Richard Malat. But Small realised that their testimony would be of little use in court. The incident had happened 17 years ago. Identification was uncertain, the link with the Belanglo killings circumstantial. Once again, Ivan Malat appeared to have slipped the net. Intensifying their scrutiny of Malat, police located his ex-wife Karen. Traumatised by the verbal abuse, sexual domination and violent erratic behaviour she had endured while she lived with him, she had changed her name and moved to a secret address, hundreds of kilometres north. She told police how he was so gun-obsessed that he often stuffed a small handgun wrapped in a sock down the side of his boot. He kept another revolver either in a wooden case under their bed or under the driver's seat of his car. His guns, like many of his other possessions, were often marked distinctively with his initials, an M intersected with an I. She and Jason, her son by another relationship, had made a few trips with Malat to the Belanglo Forest. On one, she had been stunned when he had shot a kangaroo, then walked up to it and slit his throat. Finally, on St Valentine's Day 1987, when her husband was away for a few days, she slipped away. On his return, Malat, incandescent with rage, stormed off to her parents' home demanding to know her new address. But even after a fire mysteriously burnt their garage to the ground, they refused to say where she had fled. For a couple of years, Malat took up with one of his brother's ex-wives, but that relationship ended in late 1989, just a few months after an acrimonious divorce from his wife was finalised. Was that the trigger for the killings? Small pondered. Not until June 1992 did Malat again have a steady girlfriend. She was Chalinda Hughes, a woman of Indian ancestry. With Malat now a prime suspect, checks at his workplace established that he had been on holiday or taken days off on each of the occasions that the seven backpackers had gone missing. Small set up covert surveillance on Malat and his home in Cinnabar Street, Eaglevale, to see if they could glean any direct evidence linking him to the Belanglo killings. Everything we have so far is circumstantial, Small remarked to Lynch. There's really nothing with which he can be charged. Then investigators working their way through the mountain of leads came to the record of a telephone call from a woman called Joanne Berry. In January 1990, she had picked up a terrified backpacker who had been attacked by a driver who had given him a lift on the Hume Highway. She had driven him to nearby Bowral Police Station. The victim was Paul Onions, a 24-year-old air conditioning engineer from Britain. But Bowral Police had taken no statement from him about the attack. There had been no follow-up interview with the detective. There was only a fragmentary entry in the notebook of the officer who had been on the desk when Onions arrived at the station, 
and a note in the station occurrence book that had been filed away and forgotten. This calamitous failure in police practice meant that Small's team, who had spent weeks checking out every attempted or successful abduction in the area since 1985, had had no chance of finding what could have been a good lead. Another discreet check with Malat's employers established that he had been away from work on the day of the attack on Paul Onions, Thursday, January 25, 1990. On the phone to Onions, now back in England, police at last got a full account of what had happened on that day. Onions, a slim man just 167 centimetres tall, had taken a train out to Liverpool to start hitchhiking down the Hume Highway. At 1pm, still without a lift, he was trudging along in the heat of midsummer when he came to a row of shops in Kazula. As he bought himself a cold drink at a newsagent's, a stocky man with a bushy moustache standing next to him asked genially, Need a lift, mate? Do I ever, replied Onions. I'm heading for Mildura, but anywhere along the way will do. As they came out of the shop, the man indicated a silver four-wheel drive vehicle. Onions pushed his backpack over the back of the passenger seat and settled into the sheepskin seat cover. My name's Paul, he introduced himself. The driver responded with a smile. Mine's Bill. As they travelled through the rolling hills of New South Wales' southern highlands, they exchanged a few more sketchy details about their lives. Bill worked on the roads, based at Liverpool. He was divorced. His family came originally from Yugoslavia. After about half an hour's drive, Onions noted that the warmth had gone from his companion's voice. Somehow, the conversation had veered to the presence of British troops in Northern Ireland. I reckon they've no right to be there. What do you reckon? Onions began to feel uneasy. Is this man trying to pick an argument with me? From time to time, he noticed the vehicle slowing down. What's happening? he asked. No worries, mate, said Bill. We're getting out of range of the Sydney radio stations. I'm just looking for somewhere to pull over so that I can get some tapes. Onions glanced down. Several cassettes were within easy reach between the front seats. When the vehicle finally halted, he was glad to step out to stretch his legs and shake some of the uneasiness from his mind. As he got back into the car, Bill was fumbling under his seat. Seconds later, Onions found himself staring down the barrel of a small black revolver. Just centimetres from his face, he could see copper-tipped bullets in the chamber. This isn't happening. It's a dream. Suddenly, Bill's voice boomed. This is a robbery. Again, he fumbled under the seat. As he brought out a bag, rope dangled from it. Stark terror now flooded Onion's mind. A gun might be used as a threat. A rope is for real. Whipping off his seatbelt, Onions flung himself out of the vehicle. Half falling to the road, he began running. He heard a cry, Stop or I'll shoot! Cars flashed by. There was the crack of gunfire. Ducking and weaving, Onions dodged across to the grassy median strip separating the two carriageways. Frantically, he tried to flag down a passing vehicle. No one stopped. Bill was right behind him. Powerful hands gripped his T-shirt. Onions dropped to the ground and the two men rolled over several times. With terror-driven strength, Onions yanked himself from Bill's grasp and dashed onto the roadway. If the next vehicle didn't stop, he was prepared to throw himself at it. As a Toyota Tarago van lurched to a halt, Onions was at the driver's window. Please let me in! Please! Help! He's got a gun! Go away! yelled the woman driver. Joanne Berry, travelling south with her sister, had seen part of the struggle. 
but in the back of the van were four of her children and one of her sisters. Please let me in, please! Joanne Berry saw the terror in the young man's eyes. He was trembling close to tears. She reached back to undo the door lock. As Onion stumbled in amongst the youngsters, she gunned her vehicle in a bumpy arc across the median strip to head back towards Barrel. Now, as the detective checked key points over the telephone, Onions reflected on his escape. The attack had taken place just under a kilometre from the turn-off to the Belanglo Forest. With icy certainty, he realised that that had been meant to be the end of his journey. Small already knew that Bill was one of the aliases used by Ivan Milat, and the details of his life he had related to Onions fitted him like a glove. If Onions could identify his attacker, they could at least charge Milat with attempted abduction. On May 5, 1994, at New South Wales Police Headquarters, Paul Onions viewed the identification video showing 13 photos, all of men with moustaches. Can I see it again, he requested. After several replays, he eventually paused on frame number four. That's him. It was the photograph of Ivan Milat. Small and his team now had enough evidence to charge Milat with attempted abduction. What they still didn't have was a piece of evidence strong enough to link him to the Belanglo killings. From Malat's previous brushes with the law, Small and Lynch knew that he was extremely unlikely to be panicked into making incriminating admissions. It could all depend on what they found in his home. 300 police were briefed to search the Eagle Vale house and seven other premises owned or used by members of the Malat family. Before making his final move, however, Small decided to dispatch Detective Senior Sergeant Bob Benson to see Alex Malat, now living on a small farm outside Nambour in Queensland, about his sighting of the two carloads and the gagged women. But Alex still stuck to his statement. The police never did discover what lay behind it. As Benson chatted to Alex and his wife Joan over a cup of coffee, Joan suddenly asked the tall, balding detective the colour of the backpacks that had belonged to the victims. When Benson described them, she left the room, returning a minute later with a pink, lilac and black backpack. Benson could hardly believe his eyes. It appeared to be identical to one owned by Simone Schmidl. Joan said her brother-in-law Ivan had given it to her before they moved up to Queensland. Nodding nonchalantly, Benson inspected the backpack's inside flap. It bore Ivan's initials, an M intersected by an I. When he heard the news, Rod Lynch exulted to Small. We've got him. At 6.40am next morning, Sunday, May 22, a convoy of vehicles, some disguised as tradesmen's vans, blocked off Cinnabar Street in Eagle Vale. Six police armed with Heckler Koch submachine guns and ballistic shields stood ready in case Malat tried to make a run for it, leaving just enough space for a van with members of the commando-style state protection group to speed through. Inside Malat's single-storey house, the telephone rang. Police are around your premises, a police negotiator told a sleeping-sounding Milat. They're in possession of a search warrant to search those premises in relation to an armed robbery matter. No joke. I want you to come outside for the safety of yourself and whoever's in the house with you. Now, what I want you to do is come out the front door, turn left, you'll then be met by some state protection group police who'll be dressed in black. They will be armed and I want you then, at their direction, to lie face down on the ground. Okie doke. But Malat did not appear. When police called again, they got his girlfriend, Chalinda Hughes. After some brief conversation, 
Millat himself was back on the line. He claimed he thought it was some friends from work, winding him up as a joke. No, mate, this is the police. It's no joke. Finally, Millat emerged in checked shirt and jeans. Turn to your left, get down, get down, yelled police. As soon as Chilinda Hughes appeared, she was whisked away to a waiting car. Police now poured into Malat's home. For Senior Constable Andrew Gross, it had been a long wait, nearly 20 months since he had bent over Joanne Walter's body in the Belanglo Forest. As he and others fanned out through the house, they saw signs that items had been hurriedly concealed. Malat, utterly calm, was handcuffed and brought back into the house for questioning. He was told he was being arrested for armed robbery and then asked if he understood what was going on. Yes, but it wasn't me. Detective Sergeant Stephen Leach, a large, bearded figure, asked about the backpackers and the Belanglo Forest. Malat answered him, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you got any firearms in the house? No. Have you ever been to the Belanglo State Forest? asked Leach. I've driven up the dirt track that goes past it. A long time ago, in the mid-80s, Malat replied. In Malat's bedroom, police found dozens of .22 cartridges, rolls of black electrical tape and a driving licence in the name of his brother, Michael, but with his own photo. There was also a postcard from New Zealand that started with the words, Hello, Bill. Asked Leach, Have you ever been known by the name of Bill? Malat shook his head. Leach showed him the card. It must have been a mistake. In the laundry room, an officer noticed that the washing machine was a couple of centimetres off the ground. Underneath was a .32 Browning pistol. In the spare bedroom, police found more .22 calibre ammunition and a plastic bag with a used .22 Winchester cartridge case, later found to have the impression of a Ruger 10.22 firing pin. Hidden inside a book on bituminous road surfacing was an instruction manual for a Ruger 10.22. Have you ever had in your possession a Ruger 1022? Leach asked. No, said Malat. When he wanted to use firearms, he borrowed them from his brother Alex, who had gone to live in Queensland. In the hall cupboard, part of a Ruger 1022 was stuck in a boot. Later, groping through the roof and wall cavities of the house, police found more parts for the same weapon, plus a spare magazine. Elsewhere in the house they found sleeping bags identical to those once owned by Simone Schmidl and Deborah Everest, an Olympus 35mm camera similar to Caroline Clark's and a cooking set like the one used by Simone Schmidl. A water bottle bore the scratched initials IM. Later, examination under ultraviolet light showed that someone had attempted to scratch out another name, Simi, Simone Schmidl's nickname. A green tent in the garage was tied up with a purple band that stirred memories for Andrew Gross. It was an exact match of the compacto matte band found around Simone's skull. Also in the garage was a green striped pillowcase with five lengths of sash cord, one stained with blood. Later DNA testing of Caroline Clark's parents showed that the blood was 118,000 times more likely to have come from one of their children than from anybody else in the population. In the home of Malat's mother, police found a shirt identical to one that had belonged to Paul Onions. At Richard Malat's property, they came across Caroline Clark's blue tent and her sleeping bag. Nearby, at Walter Malat's house, there was a day pack that had belonged to Simone Schmidl, as well as .22 ammunition in boxes, 
with the same batch number as the one found near the body of Gabor Nugebauer. From a rifle range at a property used by the Malats, police retrieved 16,000 used cartridge cases. At least four of them bore exactly the same firing pin markings as those on cartridges found near the bodies of Caroline Clark and Gabor Nugebauer. Clive Small was dumbfounded by the amount of evidence linking Malat to the Belanglo killings. Still, he kept a grip on his elation, reminding himself how often Malat had previously slipped the judicial system. Ivan Malat's committal hearing opened at Campbelltown Local Court on October 24, 1994. He was committed for trial to the Supreme Court. The 18-week trial began in Sydney's St James Court on March 25, 1996. Ivan Malat, faced with an overwhelming catalogue of firearms, camping equipment and other incriminating evidence, coolly disclaimed any knowledge of how the items came into the possession of himself or his family. Obviously, someone's trying to make me look real bad. The implication? It was a fit-up. By the end of the trial, there had been 172 witnesses, 201 witness statements and about 800 exhibits. The parents of Joanne Walters, Caroline Clark, James Gibson and Gabor Nugebauer, Simone Schmidl's father and the mothers of Deborah Everest and Anja Habshid all gave evidence. Malat, clean-shaven and neat in a dark suit, fixed each one with an icy, unblinking stare. In court, Malat's family remained supportive. Alex's wife Joan insisted that she, not Ivan, had written the initials IM in the backpack he gave her. Several family members testified that Ivan had been at a party at his mother's house on December 26, 1991, and so couldn't have been involved in the disappearance of Anja Habshid and Gabor Nugebauer. Similarly, several maintained they were with him on a camping trip in April 1992, when Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark went missing. In an album, Bill Malat's wife Carolyn had a photograph that appeared to confirm that. Inspecting the album, however, investigators noticed that the date beside the photograph had been altered from 1991 to 1992. In the witness box, Carolyn Millat adamantly denied she had changed the date to help Ivan. The prosecuting counsel asked her to look at the date on the back of the photo. It was 1991 in Ivan's handwriting. On July 27, 1996, after two and a half days' deliberation, the jury returned their verdicts. They found Ivan Millat guilty of all seven murders and the attempted abduction of Paul Onions. Sentencing him to life imprisonment, Justice David Hunt directed that he be kept in jail for the term of his natural life. His voice near to breaking, the judge reminded the court, these seven young persons were at the threshold of their lives, with everything to look forward to. Whatever the actual causes of their death may have been in each case, it is clear that they were subjected to behaviour which, for callous indifference to suffering and complete disregard of humanity, is almost beyond belief. Refusing to express either guilt or remorse, Ivan Milat launched an appeal against his convictions. It was dismissed on February 26, 1998. In October 1997, Clive Small was promoted to commander of crime agencies, an elite force of 600 detectives tackling homicide and other serious crime. Rod Lynch, promoted to chief superintendent, is his deputy. Paul Onions declined to apply for a share of the $500,000 reward given to those who played a part in cracking the backpacker murders. 
he asked that the money go instead to the victims' families and the New South Wales Homicide Victims Support Group. The reward I've got is my life, he said. In memory of their daughter, Ian and Jacqueline Clark organised the breeding of a new peach petal rose named Caroline Clark. It bloomed for the first time in their garden in Northumberland, England, not far from Caroline's final resting place in a churchyard. Deep in the Belanglo State Forest, next to the boulder where Joanne Walters' body was found, a plaque inscribed to her reads, Keep your arms around her, Lord, and give her special care. Make up for all she suffered and all that seems unfair. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia 